We're continuing on the path and the journey of exploring creativity and digging deep into how human beings, people, groups can gather together collaboratively and utilize the strength that's innate in all of them and using the gifts that we really all do have inside and not be so challenged by all that's going around us that stops us from fully realizing our creative power and creativity. To do that today, we brought in a serial entrepreneur and now retired professional musician and classical violinist, Jordan Urbach. Jordan is a extraordinary entrepreneur with tremendous uh, focus and acuity in the tech sector, particularly working out of New York, which brings him a different point of view, but specifically at a company now called Mass Labs, which is a Mark Cuban-backed platform for sharing video and content on mobile web and TV. We also are gonna be joined today by Mike Viseglia, my co-host, on various different ventures around creativity. Mike comes as a, a very uh, famous New York City-based sideman with an emphasis on bass. He has played with a variety of top stars around the world and traveled for 27 years with Suzanne Vega. And he's gonna join me today to bring a different conversation with three of us talking as a group specifically about these different topics around creativity. Enjoy. So let's talk about favorite music. Sure. You've got some inside of, uh, inside of that brain of yours. It starts where? Head. Um, well, it, starts, it starts from, I think, what you grew up with. You know? I think the, that like, sets the foundation for what you're going to listen to the rest of your life. And, and for me, I was lucky. I had a, I had a mom that, that was really you know, behind me, pushing me into classical music, which was successful for me. And then a dad who grounded me because I came home and, and he was you know, blasting Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I, was, when I was playing coffee houses as a kid, I would you know, play guitar to take away some of the, you know, the, the pressure of playing classical violin all the time. And um, I learned one song from my dad. It was his favorite song, Can't Find My Way Home, you know, the uh, Blind Faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Eric Clapton. Yeah, yeah, I do. Let's yeah. play it. simple and so Beautiful complex song. at Beautiful. the same time. Yeah. Talk about that. Oh, sure. Why this tune? I mean, yeah, it's got a little bit of everything. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when I when I was first playing guitar, I was, I was playing like, you know, Spanish style guitar the way a lot of people first learn. I just desperately did not want to have two classical instruments in my life. And so I started improvising around and I wanted, I wanted to be able to sing and play guitar, which is how one got ladies in the 90s. And uh, I think it's still the same. Is it? Is I that? Does so. it still work? I think, yeah. So I was, I've been told the first the first song I actually learned to sing and play at the same time, which was a major block for me, um, was uh, "Fire and Rain." And when my uh, dad finally told me this was his favorite song, I had some motivation to learn it. And uh, it's been that one song that I've always had in my head, be able to you know pull out at a guitar at the campfire, you know that whole thing. But you know the song is great because it's a great song, and it's iconoclastic, but without trying. 
and all, you know. The bridges are all improvisations and Stevie Winwood's whistling, right, and uh, Clapton's you know, playing in and around there. There's no real distinction that the voice is the primary instrument and the guitar is a secondary instrument. And then the chord structure itself is cool because it has definition and motion in of itself. It's hard to explain. Can I actually grab that? Yeah. 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 Chord progression is always defined by that bottom hit. Of course. So. Yeah. Why do you have um, music as such, seemingly such an integral part in your office life too, with all the instruments? Why is it there? What is, what is that? What is having music, or even having the instruments, or being able to sit down and play? What is that? What does that bring to you as a business person? Honestly, it's tough for me to speak creatively without a guitar on my lap like this. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I have my most open, lucid moments when I have an instrument in my hand, even when those moments have nothing to do with music. Exactly. My right. co-founder is a lefty but he's a, a genius and he can play righty guitar too. And so I, I've never tried to, to play lefty, but I imagine it's, it's difficult. And he, he and I will pick up the guitars in the office and jam uh, during breaks and meetings. Everybody else will take a bio break, you know, in a long um, iteration planning meeting. We make software and, uh, and we'll, we'll go and jam together. And we have a ton of mutual respect for each other and that helps to clear the mind. I'm sure you're aware as someone who's in, involved in neuroscience that the functional MRI studies yeah. have shown that when there's music involved in any specific activity, it engages more parts of the brain than any other activity you can do. So I would think that even having music as a, an addendum to a business meeting or whatever might, might be there actually gets you to activate your brain in ways that it might not be activated with, without the music. So there might be more, more areas you're receiving from even on a business term. The neuropsychological community has sort of agreed on a term for what the opposite of procrastination is, and it's, it's called flow. It can be loosely described as a, as a highly focused mental state where there aren't really a ton of obstacles in the way between you and actually getting your work done. And it's something that people in very certain fields have to get into in order to get their work done. Software engineers are chief among that, and those are 80% of my employees. So anything that I can do in the office to help encourage flow, whether that's providing you know, uh, sound-canceling headphones or uh, hosting sessions where people can get their grievances out and thus have nothing to think about when they get back to their desk except getting their work done, that, stuff, that stuff's top of mind for me as a technology manager, which is what I am. I'm the chief technology officer and one of the co-founders of my company, and my chief job is to take all of the obstacles out of the way in between my engineers and designers and their ability to achieve flow and work consistently. Yeah. But it's true in, in, in a business capacity too. Definitely. And so while that is the, the responsibility of a musician, in a very visceral, physical way that people can see. Yeah. In a business context, it is really the same. That's right. And I we're agree. blocked by very similar natural and emotional obstacles. Mm -hmm. If you want to take it into the business context is, hey, when you notice your attention wandering, when you notice that you're getting into waters that are too deep for you to swim comfortably, when you notice you're getting into fields where you don't have the right skills to handle it, when you notice your business getting out from under your control, your project getting out from where you feel comfortable, bring it back to what you're comfortable with. If you're, if you're a design person, come at it from that design perspective again. If you're a technical person, forget about the design challenges. If you're a hustler, think about it from a strategic partnerships perspective. Come back to your breath, come back to your strength. But you do have to discover 
what those strengths are and sure. allow yourself to break patterns. And in a, in a business capacity where we're all charged with executing or succeeding yeah. in some way, we have to be able to trust our inner selves and trust the people around us. Being an entrepreneur has its own set of uh, wackiness. Yeah. A friend of mine once told me when I was considering starting a business, he said quietly and somewhat in whispered tones, you do know you're nuts <laughs> and no one will like you and you won't have a lot of friends. So just understand that that's a possible outcome of choosing to be an entrepreneur. You've had many entrepreneurial ventures, why? Yeah. That's a great question. You get bored fast or you have too many things to figure out? So great questions uh, and I don't know. I. I don't think it's because I don't like working for people. I've, I've worked for people before and I think I'm a pretty good employee. Um, I don't think it's because I get bored quickly. I've had some of the same interests since I was a kid and I still listen to Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I think that it's because I get super frustrated when I see things that aren't being done well. And that's, that's really, every single thing that I've done, I've done because I've looked at the world and said, why on earth is this being done this way? I could do it better and that would be better for people. And so for it, enough people, for like a large enough total addressable market or TAM, right, that it actually makes sense to start a business. So does it, there's an edge there, and I just want to yeah. probe it a little. Yeah. There's an edge between that can be done better, and it actually pisses me off enough that I'm going to go figure that out. And I fall over that edge. But the thing is, that, I mean, it, a lot of people, a lot of people have those kinds of ideas. You see something... And you say that could be done better, and I could, or I, I could do that better, or somebody else could do that better. But then there's the big leap of actually going and doing it and realizing it, and that's that to me is one of the remarkable aspects of of your career and you know the things that you've done is that you see something and you just go and do it. You're not held back by by any any kind of um, you know fear. It only really matters if your beautiful idea has a decent enough total addressable market size and you're the right person to do it, right? And you then go and actually execute on it. And when you do, you've got like a five to seven year life cycle, actually getting longer now, say a seven to 10 year life cycle before any real world value realization out of it. I'm, I'm right on the edge of adrenaline junkie. Um, almost everything I enjoy, including music, is uh, either dangerous or fine line between success and failure. And I think that fulfillment for me comes in the form of me doing something very difficult and probably dangerous and doing it well and making people happy and, and, and actually addressing the market that everybody's talking about. That's great. Answer. Whether that market is the, the audience in front of me or you know, 50,000 people using one of my, one of my apps. You know. So YouTube's unbeatable, right? That business model, baked, cooked, yeah, I mean, move on. You, right? you, you want to talk about irrational decisions and fear, right? Um, the the part of the brain that makes rational decisions says you probably shouldn't challenge someone that's as entrenched as YouTube is, right? YouTube is one of those five or ten things that I refer to as like core utilities of the internet, whether or not you like them, right? LinkedIn, Yelp, right? These the, these sorts of things, um, but. Uh, it stands to reason my, my, my venture right now that my, myself and Jonathan Swerdland started three years ago is MassLab. And um, this is the company that Mark Cuban and, and many other investors and VCs got behind uh, with the very idea that uh, video is nascent still on the web 
and especially on mobile, and that current solutions aren't handling it well. So we went out and built a framework, the ML framework, that we think is the best damn way on earth to get video off your phone, up to the cloud, do stuff to it, get it back down to any device as quickly, smoothly, beautifully as possible. And then uh, we married that to a micropayments engine. You're now going peer-to-peer. Exactly, and, and the reason for that is not because I have a grand vision for the way that people should spend their money. It's because I'm just an observer, right? So you watch YouTube, you notice that the major creators have a Kickstarter every month. They've got GoFundMe pages, they've got Patreon pages. They're sending their viewers elsewhere to spend actual money on them, right? And if that mechanic works, which it obviously does because it's been going on for over a year, why wouldn't a platform where that friction doesn't exist work, right? And so that's the concept behind Portal that lets people support their favorite artists, creators, what have you, with uh, tips that are as low as a tenth of a cent, and that allows those creators to set paywalls on their videos that, again, are as low as a tenth of a cent. And on aggregate, I believe that these mechanics are going to enable these creators who previously couldn't even start to make a living on YouTube be able to do their art for their living. Is part of what fascinated you driven by being an artist yourself? and a creator yourself? I absolutely have empathy because I was a professional musician. The market itself makes sense, the technology makes sense, but more than anything, I empathize with the creator. I understand what it's like to not have the 9,000 views, which is the threshold in some cases for being able to even start advertising on YouTube. I understand what it's like to try to cobble together all sorts of technological solutions to just try to get a following. You know, uh, So yes, I empathize with my user base in a huge way. I understand that. As That's a musician, a, Mike. Well, this could be a game changer, your, yeah. I have to say. This takes the tech maelstrom right out of the middle, right? No, yeah, as opposed you. to you know, all of the different solutions that there used to be. All, all I'm saying is if you are so amazing that you can drive viewership to your videos, which I can't even do. Which right? is the hard, arguably the hardest part of the right? job. You've got the front right. of the pipeline filled. Right. If you're that amazing, you should have a tool that lets you easily right. get support from Not those people, right? Yeah. And that's all we're building with, with Portal. Right. Yep. We've been talking a lot about individuals, human beings singularly, about how to break through. And we came from a, an entrepreneurial perspective kind of through the eyes or ears of a musician on our own. But to ultimately be successful in any kind of venture it involves other people. It's gonna be a group effort to get there. And we certainly could all, through our music experiences, have trust be something that we all feel strongly about, has to be present in order to be able to create and solve anything. But let's talk about that for a couple minutes, just to try to understand how each of us sees trust and sees the way through people to be able to accomplish something important. Well, I think it's important in my line of work, but I think this can work in any business where there's a group of people. The participants need to feel that they are able to express themselves. The only way you can express yourself fully and be fully committed to a job is if you feel that you trust your environment, that you trust that if there's a mistake, that it's just going to be seen as for what it is. It's not, it's not like a deal breaker. So people don't feel like they're walking on eggshells or they're parsing their words. When you are in that situation where you, when you're that repressed um, and you are walking on eggshells for whatever reason that that's been, that environment's been created, um, 
you're completely blocked. You're not, you're not really participating fully. You're not really open enough to get really great ideas. And I think that it's really up to a good leader to pick the, hire the right people, pick the right people, and then let them express themselves, that they have the trust in you that they can do that. And once they feel that, that amount of personal investment on their part, I think that's where the good ideas start to happen. I think that's where the accomplishments start to come in. So I think it's important. I don't think anywhere that's more extreme than in your line of work, Mike. True. Right? You know, when you're, when you're in a band, um, you have to hire a violinist if you're a bassist because you just can't play the damn violin, right? And in my line of work, it's a little bit uh, less extreme Right, in so far that um, as a human being, I'm capable of doing some social media marketing and I'm capable of making some decks and I'm capable of coding a little bit and I'm capable of um, you know, executive function, but I gotta hire for it, right? And you, you have to hire for the things you're not good at. That's what builds trust in a team is, is coming right at it off the gate and hiring those A-plus players. Isn't it interesting that businesses or groups of any kind make choices to hire and bring out what they believe to be the best in people and assemble them in a collective way and then repress them. It's, al- it's counterintuitive. I've seen it happen time and it's again. It's more common than yeah. not common, actually, yeah. that people want to be in control of others in a way that actually defangs them or you know, get, gets them out of a place of comfort or, as you said, flow so that trust can happen. It's true. If you can cultivate an office full of employees that feel fully, fully invested in what they're doing and they're expressing themselves, I mean, the, just that alone, that, that energy that, will, that appears uh, will create such cross-pollinization of, of ideas that you might never have even thought of. That could be the answer to answers to problems that you've had for, for a long, long time. Yeah, I think that there's a flip side to this, which is almost dangerous, right? Where you may have the ability just through monetary means to hire the best people, right? And get them in a room together. And then through a complete lack of management or rather leadership, uh, you end up not making use of those assets, right? And, and they rot away or they leave and you fail to create a culture that has trust in it, right? Hiring is only one part of trust in a team culture. The other part is actually fostering that. Mm-hmm. And, um, Setting vision, making sure that vision has buy-in and then vision is stuck by is, is one of the most effective ways to... Like be able to police that. Exactly. Right? And then it becomes self-policing, mm-hmm. especially if you have systems in place like that are common in software development, like an agile system mm-hmm. where individuals actively unblock one another and call each other out for being blocked. Um, but those systems have to get set up in place. If you, are, if you don't know how to manage and you shrink away from that, um, there, there are ways to educate yourself in management techniques that are lightweight, that don't stifle teams, and that enable you to put structures in place that self-regulate. Mm-hmm. And not doing that is a crime. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a great way to express it. It is a crime. It's particularly when you work so hard to gather talent and people and, and, and gifts that we're all blessed with and, and have evolved to be able to have that strength we feel so good about, to not have a chance to express that or not have an environment where that can be cultivated, it does kind of fall in that yep. category of being a crime because it is humanity we're talking about. And, and ultimately trying to fix or solve anything yep. is hard. Yep. So I, I would say if you guys are game, let's take a shot at making some music. Let's do it. Tomorrow.